In the spirit of the holiday, I have a confession to make. I did not write this sermon, nor did I write my sermon last night. I mean, I did, but I also didn't. You see, I got stuck. I had an idea of what I wanted to say, but I simply could not focus my message. I knew I needed help badly. So I turned to the incredible, soon-to-be rabbi, Rose Previsor, <laughs> for her guidance and her Torah. She provided me with incredible insight, as she always does. And then I turned to Rabbi Jonathan Bubis, our chazan, and he shared with me some wonderful stories and ideas. And then I turned to another dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Joe Schwartz of Manhattan. Not once, but twice. He told me all about the things that he had been thinking about recently and how he thought they might be able to help me out in my sermons. But despite these conversations and learning so much from such wonderful people, such brilliant minds, I was still stuck. So I called Rabbi Aviva Funke, <laughs> whose caring and beautiful Torah helped me find the words for which I had been searching. But I still needed some practical real-life examples in which to root my message. So I called one of my closest friends, Abby Pfeiffer. Not a rabbi, or soon-to-be rabbi, but she does have a master's in Jewish education, and she serves as the executive director of the Brittingham Social Enterprise Lab at the USC Marshall School of Business. And as always, she was there for me and provided exactly what I needed. Some of you might hear this and not bat an eye, but I would hazard a guess that most of you might never have thought about what goes into the process of writing a sermon, especially one as big as for Yom Kippur. But if you did, and you're like me, you probably imagined a rabbi tucked away in their study, their table covered in books, both holy and secular, open to various pages, academic journals flagged and marked with notes, and notepads filled with thoughts, quotes, and outlines. And in this picture, the rabbi is alone, lost in a world of their own thoughts, striving to craft with love, consideration, and diligence the perfect message for their community. The truth is, this is often the case. For most Shabbats and holidays, this is the exact process I use to craft my sermons. Sometimes I might wander to the beach to refresh my mind, or I pick up an instrument to find inspiration in music. Every once in a while, I come right here into the sanctuary. I pull up a chair and I meditate in front of that bima, in front of that ark, hoping to find inspiration in the presence of such concentrated holiness. But sometimes, and quite often, I can't find Torah on my own. It's as if my soul knows that if I want to encounter the divine, I need the help of others. The people of Africa, primarily of southern Africa, have a word for this idea, Ubuntu, often translated as, I am because we are, or people are people 
because of other people. Desmond Tutu explains, and I quote, you can't exist as a human being in isolation. It speaks about our interconnectedness. You can't be human all by yourself. We think of ourselves far too frequently as just individuals, separated from one another, whereas you are connected, and what you do affects the whole world. When you do well, it spreads out. It is for the whole of humanity. Continues to say that anger, resentment, lust for revenge, even success through aggressive competitiveness are corrosive of the greatest good, social harmony. How this message resonates with us today. We're living in a time when we're taught the only way to win is by having someone else lose. Our discourse has become so polarized that families and friends have severed ties, both online and in person, over differences of opinions. And at any given time, it feels like half of our country is protesting one company, while the other half is boycotting another. We no longer live in the United States of America. We live in the fractured factions of America. I'm frightened that if we stay on this trajectory, the only possible outcome is civil, or rather uncivil, war. If we want to avoid such a dramatic and destructive end, we must start seeing ourselves as one interconnected people. But this is no easy task. Even Martin Luther King struggled to open others' eyes to the truth of our interconnectedness. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he wrote, We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And yet here we are, 55 years later, listening to arguments over whether or not it's acceptable, let alone patriotic, for football players to kneel during the national anthem in order to raise awareness of police brutality and the struggles that people of color still face today. Why is it so hard to see ourselves as one? We could go back even further, like 1,500 years ago. In the Talmud, the rabbis question whether a son can be sentenced to death for a crime his father committed. They point to a verse in the Torah that says, Kashlu ish b'achiv, the people shall stumble together. The rabbis conclude that this verse implies something else, that, one, that when one person does evil, it brings others down with them. And they immediately introduce a phrase which has become a central philosophy in Judaism. Kol Yisrael aravim zebazeh. We are all interconnected with one another. This is why all of our liturgy is written in the language of we. When we recite Ashamnu, we're not saying, I have messed up. We're saying, we have messed up. We, because our fates are intertwined. Your mistakes can hurt me as mine you. And so we have a responsibility to hold one another accountable and to push one another to do even better. Even Jewish law puts desires of the whole above the desires of the individual. Elsewhere in the Talmud, the rabbis discuss urban planning and city ordinances. 
Now in those days, people lived in walled cities. With their farms located outside of the city walls. And the question arises about someone who plants a tree too close to the city walls. All the rabbis agree that the person is not compensated for the loss of that tree when they cut down the tree. But the rabbi's question is, why must a tree be cut down in the first place? Now, I would have thought that the conversation was about security. Right? An intruder could easily hide in the shadows and climb the branches and easily scale the city's walls. But that's not what the rabbis discuss. It turns out the rabbis say that the tree branches would diminish the beauty of the city's walls. In other words, they say the desires of the whole to have a beautiful view takes precedence over, the, over an individual's desire to have a tree. And yet, despite our long tradition of telling us, of telling ourselves how important community is, we still struggle to embrace fully this philosophy. Why? I believe the struggle stems not from our inability to accept the idea that our identities and destinies are interwoven. But rather, the struggle stems from our inability to put that belief into practice. How often do we celebrate the successes of others unprompted? How often do we acknowledge the role that others have played in our own successes? This is where we can benefit from the Ubuntu philosophy. Desmond Tutu explains that a person with Ubuntu is open and available to others, affirming of others, does not feel threatened that others are able and good. What would it look like if we stopped seeing others as a threat and began seeing them as a crucial element in our success? This is why I say that I did not write this sermon because it was not just me who wrote it. It was also my friends and colleagues. It was the rabbis of the Talmud. It was the, also the founders, practitioners, and proponents of Ubuntu philosophy. And it was each of you because if I didn't have a community to address, there would never have been a sermon to write. If we want to change the course of our national dialogue, and return to a culture of civility and dialogue, maybe this is a way to begin the process. Maybe if we start acknowledging how those close to us have a direct impact on our lives, then it will become that much easier to see how those who we don't know personally might have an indirect impact on our lives. Then, not only will we be able to embrace the idea that we live in an inescapable network of mutuality, but we'll even begin to conduct ourselves with true Ubuntu, and we'll be able to unite these states of America once again. Good job, everybody.